to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Is for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, I had not met you. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I just want to welcome you again. Uh, David welcomed you this morning, but I want to doubly welcome you. Just glad that you're here today. Um, And so uh, again, you can fill out that connection card uh, that David mentioned either in your seat or online at coahforesthills.org slash connect. Uh, and so you can fill that out. We'll send those, uh, one of those two gifts to you uh, for, uh, for doing so. And we would just love to get to know you a little bit better and know how we can serve you um, as a church. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news uh, that Jesus Christ loves us and gave his life for us. Um, and in doing so, I'm tall. Sorry, I got to fix this. There we go. Um, that's not part of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus loves us and gave his life for us, that when we were far from God, um, he brought us near through the blood of Christ. And in doing so, uh, gives us an opportunity to have a relationship with God, uh, to have what our hearts truly long for. Whatever we're longing for truly is a longing for God himself. And if you've not experienced that, we'd love to talk with you about how to enter into a relationship with Jesus this morning. Secondly, community. Community is the idea that God created us for relationships. Uh, and the fact at the very beginning of the Bible, it said it is good that man is not alone. Uh, we are not meant to go through life by ourselves. We're meant to go through it with other people. And so we do this uh, being created for relationships as Christians in, uh, in Christian community. We, we live life centered around Jesus. We do this in community groups that meet throughout the week. Uh, you can fill out that connection card and mark community groups to get connected to that. And then lastly, mission. Uh, we believe that this good news is really good news. Uh, it is good news that is uh, good for us. It helps us understand who we are before God, but also sends us into the world to live lives that have been shaped and changed by Jesus for the good of our neighbors. Uh, and, and in light of that, a couple of our announcements are related to mission. Uh, coming up uh, uh, next weekend on the 6th, uh, we are having a foster care and adoption seminar. So if you are interested in foster care, want to know how to support foster care, or really just, you know, maybe you're just kind of exploring this and you want to know what it looks like to... um uh, to, to be a part of this or support it. If you're just exploring this, it is a great thing for you to do. $15 to be a part of that. Uh, that includes lunch and a book, I believe. Um, and you can sign up on our events page, coahforesthills.org slash events. And then also coming up, we have some Thanksgiving service opportunities. We'll be kind of on the lookout for those. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll have some details here in uh, the next week. I also want to apologize. It is warm in here. I know it's hot. Um, you should have been here at about 8.30. Uh, so we got the windows opened up, got the heat turned off. The, 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 uh, the heat, uh, the winter uh, program turned on this morning. And so it is, it's a little hot. So we open the doors. Hopefully it'll cool down before we wrap up this morning. But I do want to welcome you back. Uh, we took a hiatus last week as a church and went to New Hampshire uh, as a church retreat. We did this with our other City on the Hill congregations. We are a part of a network of churches. Uh, and so we have uh, church congregations in Brookline, Brighton, and Somerville. And so we all got together and it was a really, really good opportunity to spend time together away in the woods. Uh, heard some great teaching, uh, incredible worship, got alone with the Lord. It was really good. Uh, some of you who are still in town uh, spent some time at uh, City on the Hill Brookline um, and uh, were able to worship with them. And so I just want to say thank you to them for uh, hosting all of us who were not at the retreat. And if you didn't get to go to the retreat this year, I hope you get to go, get to go next year. It is one of my favorite things 
that we do. But this morning, we are jumping back into our series through the letter to the Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is just that. It is a letter. If you've not turned there already, please do so to Ephesians 2. It's toward the back of your Bible. Uh, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Acts, Romans. You'll see 1st, 2nd Corinthians. And then if you ever just want a little fun way to find Ephesians, um, Galatia, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So uh, look for Ephesians chapter two. Uh, and this letter to this church is a vision for what the church could be. And as we talked about from the very first week, Paul's writing this letter, telling them that uh, if they are going to be the church that God wants them to be, they have to understand that it comes from knowing and being connected to vitally to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one who gives all blessings to us as Christians. The blessing of being adopted and brought into God's family is through God, through Jesus. Uh, being redeemed from our sins is through Jesus. Receiving an inheritance that will not fade is through Jesus. And then the second half of chapter one begins to shift toward the idea of God's power, that God uh, was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. This is an evidence of what we need as the church. Uh, secondly, in chapter two, that God is powerful enough to save us and raise us from the dead spiritually, but also, as we looked at two weeks ago, um, he's able to save us from our own morals. That when we think we're good enough, we think we can be a good enough person to please God or live a good life, that Jesus even saves us from that. And as we look at this next part of Ephesians chapter two, we do see the power of God. We see the power of God at work in building his church. So God is just as powerful to raise Jesus from the dead as he is to save us He's just as powerful to form us as his people. Our vision, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, is for every person from every culture to experience the gospel. And we believe that this happens through the life of the local church. We believe, we believe this is fulfilled partly by being a diverse church, living this out together. We want to be a multicultural church, a multi-generational church, a church from people from all sorts of socioeconomic levels, even politics. We want to be people who are diverse politically. You don't have to vote one way to be a part of this church. Uh, we want to be this church. We want to be the type of church um, that, that, that is life-giving in this way. But one area that we don't often consider when it comes to diversity in the church is people's experiences with the church, people's history with the church. I would venture to say this morning that there's some of you who have had a very healthy relationship with church. You went to a Bible preaching church. You went to a church that loved you and cared for you and gave you the gospel. Um, you, you, know, you grew up in that and this is, that you've never known anything different. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a church that was kind of devoid theologically, that didn't really preach the gospel. Uh, some of you, this is your first experience with church. We're just glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, but for some people in this room, church is, is traumatic. Just even being here this morning is a brave thing because you've gone through some experiences with the church where you've been hurt by leadership, you've been hurt by other people, and we want you to know that we are here for you. We want to be a church that leads people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life so that you experience the gospel. And for many of us, this means different things. Some of this means healing. Some of that means equipping. Some of that means finding life. Some of that means finding purpose. And when we think about this vision of the church, we all want that. Regardless of if church has been a good experience or a bad experience, we want that type of life-giving church. We want that type of unity around something bigger than ourselves. And I'd venture to say, even if you're not a Christian this morning, you probably kind of even want that because we're always trying to unify around something. 
There are lots of visions for unity in our world. I mean, some would say if we could just all get educated, we would be unified. If we could all just get educated around this or that, we would be on the same page. If, if we could just have the right economic policies, if, if people would just vote the way that I vote, we would all be together. Even social media, social media's original purpose and intention was to unify us and bring us together. But it seems like all it's done has done the opposite. Even churches right now are not coalescing around the gospel, but we're seeing this really weird shift where churches are beginning to shuffle around ideologically around politics. People are not leaving churches over theology, they're leaving churches over politics and preferences. But what if we could be a church like Paul describes? What, what if we could be a church that is not primarily about our preferences, is not primarily about our politics, not primarily about our personalities, but is about Jesus and Jesus alone? that holds Jesus as our common hope. I believe this is the biblical vision for the church that Paul is saying here that it's a redeemed community, people from all cultures called together who are fully loved and fully known and who are flourishing in a deep and real relationship with God, who are finding true peace. Who wouldn't want that? See, what happens is when we begin to live that out as God's church, as a church here in Boston in 2021, almost 2022, I believe our neighbors in our city experience the gospel. As we experience the gospel, others experience the gospel. And why, why is this so important? Because this is something only God can do. Building the church is something only God can do. City on a Hill was not built because I came up with a prospectus. It was not, came up because, it was not built because you know, we had a great strategy or even a great team. We have a great team. We have some people who came here this morning and crushed set up. Um, like, it's not because we have a great team, it's because we have a great God. We have a Jesus who reconciles us and holds us together because if we're gonna bring people together across different voting platforms, across different ethnicities, different personalities, different backgrounds, different accents, if we're gonna bring these people together, this is something only God can do. And we get an example of this in the letter to the Ephesians is Paul talks about the reconciliation that occurs between the Jew and the Gentile. And these two groups of people hated each other hated each other. They did not mix. They were like oil and water, and they needed something beyond themselves to hold them together. Tony Evans, who I, I love the man, he's an incredible preacher, but probably his greatest gift to the kingdom of God is his ability to form an illustration. Uh, and he has this illustration of how God unites two groups together who are like oil and water, and he uses mayonnaise as an example. And he says, mayonnaise is literally just oil and water, and you have to have something to hold them together. It's an emulsifier, and it's eggs that the egg holds two things that should not bind together together and create something new. What binds people together across all these differences is Jesus, is the hope of the gospel. And so the big idea today is that the church is the evidence of the power of God through Jesus Christ. And so let's look at what the reality of that church means for us. Firstly, we see this morning that the church means we belong. The church means that we belong. Paul here is talking about the reconciliation that has happened between the Jew and the Gentile. And he does so by starting out by reminding the Gentiles about their former state and how they used to be perceived by the Jews. It says in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Therefore is to remind them of everything that has happened prior, reminding them of that they were once dead in their sins and their transgressions, that they were enslaved to, to Satan, that they were uh, condemned before a holy God. But Jesus, God being rich in mercy, gave us his very own son and calls us to himself, saved them. He said, therefore, because of that, remember, remember what? He wanted them to remember particularly how their brokenness had played out. 
how particularly they were lost. They weren't any more lost than the Jews. They were just lost in a different way. He wanted to remind them of how they'd been saved by reminding them of where they had come from. And he says, does so by saying, you Jews, uh, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision. Now, the the, the uncircumcision was a, a term coined by the Jews, and we'll get into that in a minute. But the idea of circumcision was the sign of the covenant, the covenant that God had made with his Old Testament people, Israel, and the Gentiles had no access to that covenant. In other words, they did not belong. And Paul kind of highlights this in five ways, this idea of not belonging in five ways. In verse 12, he says that they were separated from Christ. Israel had this hope for a Messiah, a king who would come and make everything right. He was gonna come and and, and you see this all over the Old Testament. You see these little seeds and these these little pictures and these shadows of there's something better to come. Explicitly, it's said in places like, uh, like Genesis and Daniel and, uh, and uh, Zechariah that there was a king who was coming who's going to make everything right. And so the Jews were looking forward to that, looking forward to the one who would restore things and bring peace. And we all long for that, but the Gentiles, they had no hope of that. They had no knowledge of that. It's like being lost and knowing that no one is looking for you. That's how it felt to be separated from Christ. They were not only separated, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Not only were they not gonna receive a savior, but they they didn't receive the benefits of being God's people. They weren't citizens of the commonwealth or the nation of Israel. Now you have to understand about Israel, they were a theocracy, meaning that God was the literal head of their nation. We have on our dollar bill, a nation under God. They were literally a nation under God. God was the one who they were responsible to. They were a special people, which gave them certain rights. It gave them God's presence and God's protection. And in the Old Testament, non-Jews, Gentiles were invited into this. They were invited to, to come and kind of hang out with the nation of Israel, but they didn't have the same rights. It never really felt like home. You see this in the story of Ruth, who was a refugee from Moab, and she came and she didn't have certain rights with the people of God. They lived there, but they could never truly be a citizen. We see this in the same way with those who come to America who are refugees from other places, fleeing persecution. They don't always have the same rights that we do as Americans. We also see that they were strangers. They were strangers to the promises of the covenant. Strangers to the covenants of promise. None of the promises to Israel of of being a people through Abraham or having a way to relate to God through the law, through Moses, or getting a king through David. They weren't able to get any of that. They had no hope. They had nothing to look forward to. The Greek philosopher Theocritus said that hope is for the living. The dead have no hope. They had no assurance of an afterlife, of a God who was going to invite them to himself forever. It's like knowing you're walking through life with no inheritance knowing that whatever you get is what you get in this life, how hard you work. That's what they were living with. They were living with no hope that there's anything beyond this and therefore they had no God. Every culture has gods and idols that we craft because we're made in the image of God, made to relate to the living God, but the Gentiles had no special revelation or access to that God. And so William Hendrickson summarizes this, that the Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Let me repeat that. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. And Paul sums this up even better. He says that once you were far off, you did not belong. And this is all of us without Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is searching for someone to save us. 
or something to save us. We're all looking for home. We're all looking for life. We're all looking for hope. We're all looking for purpose. We're looking for a place to belong. And that's why your job may describe itself as a family. It's not a family, it's a Zoom call. Like, it's, it's, it's not a family. It's why your sports team refers to itself as the Red Sox Nation or the Red Sox Family. It's why your school has an alumni program to make you feel like you're a part of something or your running club or CrossFit tries to create the sense of belonging, that you belong to something greater than yourself. And the reason is that all of us are trying to find or recreate what we long for most, but no, we don't have. We want to be known and we want to belong. So why is Paul bringing up all this old stuff? I say, look, look, my past doesn't define me. And yes, our past does not define us as followers of Jesus, that we can never forget where we came from so that we remember how good the gospel is. You once did not belong, but now you do. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What's that mean? It means that you once did not belong, but now you do. You've been brought into this new community. And this was God's intention from the very beginning. So, uh, Isaiah 49, 6, it says, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Being brought near means that all that was not yours is now yours. You now in Jesus get a savior from your sins you get a home with God. Some of us, the idea of a home is not a safe place. It's not somewhere you can run. It's not a refuge. It's not somewhere you can exhale. In God, we have a true home that we can rest in. All the promises of being part of a people and having a way to relate to God and having a good king that we can follow and trust, having hope, having God himself, all of these things are given to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were brought near, not, not, not because you found the way, not, not because God relented on his holy standard, but because God paid for your sins. Harold Honer says, the cost of bringing the Gentile near was dear. Jesus did this by paying for the price with his very own blood to bring you near to God, and he was willing and, great and glad to do it. And so the church is this. It's a people who were once far off who've been brought close. Ones who were far off who've been brought near to God and near to each other. So what for City on a Hill, my hope and my longing is that over the years, we're not a church that's marked by perfect people. That nobody looks at our church and says, man, these people have it together. These people look good. I'm not saying you don't look good. They're saying, but these people, these people have it together. No, I want people to look at us and see these are people who know where they come from and know where they are now with God, with Christ. And it's important we see this happening as a community. This isn't just happening individually because it's easy for us to imagine church as simply something we come to to get our own spiritual needs met. We come here and we receive. It's how am I growing? What am I getting? What am I experiencing? And maybe you are experiencing things. Maybe you are growing like gangbusters. You are really growing. But the question is, is who's not? Who's, who's not experiencing community? Who's not experiencing life? Who's not experiencing this as home? Another reason that Paul brings this up is that the Gentiles were not brought close because Israel failed. Israel's mandate was actually to be a blessing to all nations, but instead of blessing people with what they had received, they hoarded the blessings of God's presence and protection. 
It's a bit like a buffet. Last week, Jason at our our retreat, he mentioned how Thanksgiving was his favorite holiday, and I had to concur and in my spirit say yes and amen. And uh, and I remember one year I went to uh, my family. My grandmother used to make these huge feasts, but one year she said, we're going to go to Gatlinburg. And if you understand, Gatlinburg is this little mountain town in Tennessee. I don't know why anybody goes there. It's just a place people in the South go. Uh, But we went there one year for Thanksgiving, and there was this place called Apple Barn. And the Apple Barn had this buffet Thanksgiving meal. And it was like really, really good food. I ate four prime rib that evening. I couldn't move for like six days. And I gorged myself on all this food and all these blessings. And the thing about a buffet, not like a Golden Corral buffet, but a good buffet is that you get brought in close, you get brought in near, and there's plenty to share. When it comes to the blessings of God, there is plenty for us to all enjoy and share. And so when we see someone who's not belonging, who's not feasting, how can we step in and invite them in? When we see a gap, how do we step into that and help others flourish? See, because being the church also levels the playing field. Because secondly, the church means that our boast changes. Our boast changes. It's easy for us to miss that this is just, a remi- is just as much a reminder for those who think they are near as those who are far away. This is just as much a reminder for those who think they have a spiritual leg up, who think they've been born into this. Because He's talking to the Gentiles about who they were before Christ. They were far off, and the Jews were really quick to remind them of that. The Jews were very quick to remind the Gentiles that, hey, you guys were really far away. They were glad to let them know it because they took great pride in their status. And instead of being humble and understanding that God had chosen them, they said, you know what? We're special. We're, we're the ones who are living rightly before God. It's like an old, the old phrase, they were born on third base and thought they'd hit a triple. They let this go to their heads and it led to great disdain for the Gentiles, so much so that they called them the uncircumcision, which was an ethnic slur. Meant that they were dirty and filthy and unclean. They called them dogs. They refused to eat a meal with them. And in fact, if you were a Jew and you married a Gentile, your parents would hold a funeral for you because you were dead to them. This was a people who had forgotten the grace of God and that they had been called, not because they were special, but because God decided to show up to a a sheep herder in modern day Iraq and call him and make a people out of him. They took such pride in their special standing and forgot that they were a tiny little nation that God had helped, had helped overcome great ones. And their pride was summed up in this term, in this phrase, in this moniker, the circumcision, the symbol of the covenant. They had elevated the importance of this outward sign to a place where they said, you know what? We're superior to you. you know, we eat clean. We don't eat pork. We're not filthy like you. We're clean before God. And it became a boast for them. But what's interesting is if you look at what modifies both uncircumcision and circumcision is this. It's the words in the flesh. What they thought was making them clean was just something they were doing to attempt to get to God on their own. The opposite of being spiritual. It was human effort. It had become a boast for them. And what you boast in is what you rejoice in. It's what makes you feel better than others. And in fact, they had taken this really good thing, this good symbol that God had chosen them and made it into an idol. And so in fact, the words there in in verse 12, it says, says, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. The words by hands is the language for making an idol. 
They had taken something good and holy before God and made it into an idol by overvaluing its, its worth and value, believing that the hour sign and their efforts earned them something before God. And we can do the same thing. We, we can look at somebody else and go, you know what? You know, I go to church. I, I go to church. I get up at 8.30 on Sunday morning and I sit in a pew at nine o'clock. And we can say that in a way that makes us think that we feel better than someone else. But all of us boast in something. We, we elevate something above its importance and we make it ultimate. We make it the standard by which we see ourselves and which we judge others. And you know that you're doing this when something makes you feel superior and it creates a division and a divide. It makes you feel superior. So here's the question. What's a non-essential that you hold over other people? Religiously, we do that. We take good things and we make them about us. We, we can even do this as a church. We can say, you know, our church is just so much more theologically rich than that church down the road. Our church just has better music than them. We do this personally. I, I read my Bible. Others should be more like me. Or we take particular rules or in particular commands and make them hold extra weight. And those always tend to be the ones we don't struggle with. Or we could do this in non-religious ways. I cannot believe those people let their kids do that. I can't believe those kids, they do baby-wise and they put their kids to bed at like 4.15 in the afternoon and they feed them from an eyedropper. I don't understand that. I can't believe you would drive that car. Don't you care about the environment? And here's how you know if you are leaning into something making you feel superior over another is when you get bitter you get angry and you're on edge when somebody does something you don't like and you're just ready to pounce. It's an arrogance. And what it does is it leads to division. It leads to strife. It leads to hostility. Paul's language here was meant to give a visual symbol of what had separated the Jew and the Gentile and what the law had actually done. And in the visual, when you think of the wall of hostility, a Gentile would have immediately thought of the temple. And so if you think about the temple, I'm just going to kind of give you a visual. In the middle, there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go before, before God. And then right outside that, there was another court called the Court of Priests, where the Levites, the priests could go. Uh, and then right outside that, there was the Court of Israel, which was the Court of Men. And then right outside that, there was the Court of Women, where Hebrew women could go. And then down five steps, there was another wall. Down 14 more steps, there was a giant thick wall, which was the Wall of Division. And outside of that, where there was the Court of the Gentiles the outer courts. And on that wall, there was a sign that said, trespassers will be executed. That's what would have been in the mind of a Gentile when they heard about the wall of hostility and what the law had done to separate them. What was meant to bring life became something that was division over food, over dress, and over ritual, over where you were born, and, and, and how, kind, of you, kind of how you hit the genetic lottery. What was meant to give life turned into a bludgeoning tool See, what happens is when we boast in anything other than Jesus, it will lead us to feeling better than others and will lead us to dividing ourselves from others. And so Eric Mason says, anything less than Jesus is a weak refuge. But the gospel gives us a new boast. The gospel gives us something better to trust in and boast in because verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. He is our boast. His blood is, shed for us, his life given so that we could have life. And when you understand the cross, it changes not only how you see him, but how you begin to see others. Because the cross ends this feeling of being superior. 
because it helps you realize I'm a sinner. I'm my worst problem. And that both Jew and Gentile need a savior. Those who are far off know they need a savior, but also those who are near, who grew up in the church, who grew up around religion, we can be so close to it yet looking in the wrong direction. We can be so close to it and actually just be looking beyond Jesus to how good we can be, which is not what Jesus ever called us to do. Which one of those are you? Are you far and know that you need a Savior? Are you near and looking past Him? And what the gospel does is it ends what divides us, verses 14 and 15. It says that there's this dividing wall between us, a dividing wall of hostility that Jesus broke down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In Romans 10, it says that Jesus ended the law as a means to righteousness or for righteousness, meaning that the way that we get right with God is not through being good, not through being a Jew, but through trusting Jesus alone, our peace, our hope, our boast. And he does this by making us one, by making one way to God the Father so that whether you're Jew or Gentile, near or far, rich or poor, black or white, we boast together in the cross. And when you boast in the cross, you don't judge people for their differences. You see them as someone who needs Jesus too. And it breaks down the walls between us. And what happens is when you focus your eyes on the cross, you don't stay mad real long. When that feeling of superiority starts to well up in you, the gospel convicts you that none of us compare to Jesus. Tim Keller says, if you understand the cross, any two people should be able to get along. If you're getting along, two people who say they believe you're not, if you're not getting along, you, you're not thinking about the cross. When we forget the cross, what we start to do is we start to pick up those bricks of the broken down wall and start to reassemble it. When we take our eyes off the cross and we begin to feel superior to others or we begin to want to be, divide ourselves from others, we just start picking those bricks up and rebuilding the wall that Jesus tore down. We are in this together. So lastly, the church means that we have a bright future together. The church means we have a bright future together. God's intention was always to bring about a people. It was always to bring about a new community. In verse 15, in fact, it says that so that there will be one new man, creating himself one new man. It says back in verse 14 that both would be one. The idea of oneness here is the Greek word kainos. That word kainos means a, a completely new type of thing, something completely new. Now, we're not talking about like a new version of the iPhone. I don't, know, I'm not gonna, I don't know how many of you got a new iPhone 13. Looked a lot like the iPhone 12. It may have had more gigawatts and this and that, but it's really pretty much the same phone, right? This type of new means, the, it's like the invention of a new means of communication. This is the invention of the telephone. This is Alexander Graham Bell inventing a new way to communicate. He's not telling the Gentiles to become Jews. He's saying all of us need to become something completely new. And if you're not a Christian this morning, what we're, we're telling you is we're not saying, come be like church people. We're saying, let's go look to Jesus together. And, and it's a bit like a blended family. And in fact, if you watch uh, TV shows and movies, and in fact, one day we are going to do a kind of a, a cultural analysis of different eras of TV and movies and, and the, the meta messages that they're telling. But in the mid-90s, there was this, this uh, kind of message and this theme of blending families together, these blended families coming together. And so in the 90s, there was a show called Step by Step. And uh, I remember they had, like uh, Suzanne Summers, and I forget the guy that was on Dallas. He had the really bad hair. They they, they brought their families together, and, and it was the story of how do we make these two groups of people come together and live as one. We saw this initially with the Brady Bunch. How do we take these two very different groups of people, and how do they mesh? How do they interact? How do they become one? 
And I actually think those shows teach us something about the new family that God is putting together. The first thing is this new family and our bright future together means that we're going to be diverse. You don't stop being you in the church. In fact, who you are, your personality, your culture, your ethnicity, don't have to be tamped down to be a part of the people of God. In fact, those things can be vivified and celebrated and clarified. The church is a place where we celebrate a variety of cultures and temperaments, and because what we celebrate is what we end up replicating. But the reality of this is also that we need people different from us. When you think about even just genetic diversity, on a genetic scale, the reason that we need genetic diversity is it helps fill in the gaps of genetic code, where that's why you, you, know, you don't marry your sister or your brother, because you have the same genetic code, and it actually leads to greater opportunities for uh, deformity. In the same way, we need a, we need a diversity of people in our, in, our, in our codes to be able to fill in the gaps of where, of where I don't see things rightly, where I don't understand certain cultural experiences. We need one another to help us know what in our cultures we embrace, what needs to be redeemed, and what might even need to be rejected. So we're unified, we're diverse together, but we're also unified. This new family means unity. We are looking together with a common hope and a common trust in Jesus. And so this one new man is in Christ, meaning that our purpose together is the same. God's purpose for you is never separated from in us. Let me make that, say that again. God's purpose for you is never separated from his purposes for and us, meaning the church. People who are wholly different than you, think different than you, look different than you, came from different backgrounds than you, like things different than you, than you. God's purpose for you is to grow together. Our unity in Christ helps us make Jesus the main thing. And our futures are intrinsically linked, meaning that it's like we're running a three-legged race. You're only going to move as fast as the person who is the slowest in a three-legged race, and you've got to work together. We're only going to grow so much on our own. We are growing toward God together, meaning also that our future is incredibly bright. We are a picture to the world of what God can do. So how do we apply this together for, here and now for City on a Hill? Because our divides are, look a little bit different than Jews and Gentiles. I would say that the greatest divide and hostility that we see broadly and culturally in America is our history with racism and white supremacy. I mean, it is something that we have not even fully dealt with and really began to just skim the surface of. And when we look at how endemic the issue of, of racism is to our country, and going back to the very beginnings of our country, was of slavery, of the dehumanizing of Africans uh, through Jim Crow segregation, redlining, but the whole chain of that, and we, we don't have near enough time to unpack all the complexities of that. That, that is something that is easily divides us. And, and in this passage, Paul did not promise that every Jew and every Gentile were going to be reconciled. But what he promises is that the church could be a forerunner and a foretaste of what could be. A picture and a vision to the world of the type of, of healing and reconciliation that is possible. And what unity in Christ allows for is a starting point for healing, not the end of healing. A lot of times when we try to apply this passage to race in America, we say, we're, uni we're unified in Christ. We're one new man. All the conversation is over no, in fact, if you really think about the history that the Jews and the Gentiles had, I can imagine that they had to have some hard conversations because the wall of hostility had been torn down, but the damage that that wall caused was just starting to be cleaned up. The Gentiles had a lot of history, and I'm sure there were some conversations that went kind of like this. You know, when you called me the uncircumcision, it deeply hurt me. 
the way that your people have historically treated my people, that they wouldn't even eat a meal with them. It's hard for me to sit down with you and think this is genuine now. But now they have the context of a family, a grounds to have hard conversations and to seek each other's good. The church can be the forerunner and the foretaste of of a new family called together with lots of stuff we still got to work out looking to Jesus together. At City on the Hill, just in our personal relationships, where are we showing grace? Where are we showing forgiveness? Where, where, where are we making sure that no one feels superior and that no, one, uh, that no one feels like there's a dividing wall between us? This is why we talk about culture so much as a church, because if we want our neighbors and our friends and our city to experience the gospel, we have to experience the transforming power of the gospel now. So a couple of application points before, as we wrap up. Ways that we can lean into this as a church. First is to lean in. Lean into community. Just your very posture. We talk about this in community groups that we want to be committed and consistent, meaning that we're committed means we, we, uh, we, it's our body posture, it's our heart posture. We're, we're, we're all in, we're all there. But we're also around. It's kind of hard to, to build this type of love and care and community when we're not consistent. So we want to lean into community. What's the next step of leaning in for you? Maybe it is getting involved with a community group. Maybe it is uh, following Jesus in baptism. Maybe it is becoming a member of the church. Secondly, soak in the gospel. We sit in and soak in the grace of God. We, we remember what, who we were and who we are now because of Christ. And if you've not yet taken that step to trust Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about that this morning. And then lastly, extend and embody grace. We are gonna have so many opportunities to offend each other. Uh, I will offend you, I promise you. I'm not gonna try, but I know I will. Because when we have proximity with other people, we're gonna let each other down. We're gonna hurt each other. We're gonna say things that are, that are difficult, but we can embody and extend the grace of God to each other. Let's pray.